Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Sonia. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program. And today's program is titled Updates on the Treatment of Tenosynovial Giant Cell Tumor, or TGCT. And today's program is really an amazingly collaborative program um, between Cancer Care and NORD, National Organization of Rare Diseases, and it is um, a very important resource for all of you. I'll mention it again uh, during at another point during the call. And um, it's because of that collaboration and your interest in the program today that we have over 100 participants on the call today. And you come from mostly the United States, from both rural, urban, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants from Canada and the United Kingdom. So really a credit to you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. Today's program is supported by an educational grant from Daiichi Sankyo, Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support of the program. And we have a wonderful speaker on the program today, and I want to introduce our next speaker, and our next, our, 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 actually our main speaker on this program is, uh, is Dr. Andrew Wagner, Medical Director, Adult Ambulatory Oncology, Associate Chief Medical Officer, Center for Sarcoma and Bone Oncology, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And Dr. Um, Wagner will be addressing an overview of the treatment of tenosynovial giant cell tumors, or TGCT, discussion of the growth patterns and locations, why TGCT may often be treated at sarcoma centers, TGCT pathophysiology, diagnosis and treatment, current treatment standards, the efficacy emerging treatments and managing TGCT, new treatment approaches, and also the importance, the important role of clinical trials, how research contributes to your treatment options, key questions to ask when communicating with the healthcare team, and quality of life concerns. And when Dr. Wagner begins, he will put this program in the context of the COVID-19 that we're all dealing with right now. And so I'm now, with my great, with great pleasure, going to turn this program over to my very esteemed colleague, Dr. Andrew Wagner. Well, thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to, to be on the phone with all of you. Uh, I wish we could be in person, but we're doing, I think, a great job right now with social distancing. Um, this is probably as good as it can get. So thank you all for joining. Um, I do want to address the COVID-19 crisis um, just briefly in this. Um, I, I think it's affecting all of us in one way or another. Um, it's anxiety-provoking, no doubt, um, trying to understand what's happening um, with people who have the illness and also each of our own risks of developing it. Um, I think I, I do want to start by reassuring you that there's nothing about tenosynovial giant cell tumor um, that puts you at a higher risk of contracting the, the uh, serious form of the illness. Um, so it's not uh, that the disease or any of the medications taken for the disease are not known to cause any significant immunosuppression. Um, and I wouldn't consider um, anyone with this disease to be in a higher risk category than anyone else who doesn't have this disease. The, um, but despite that, it's still really important for us all to, to practice social distancing um, 
and do it, you know, be very fastidious about it, um, as well as frequent hand washing. Uh, those two things are by far the most important things to, to be doing right now. Um, but again, let me just reassure you that there's nothing about uh, having this illness that changes um, your risk of getting the serious form of the illness. Um, so uh, to talk about tenosynovitis giant cell tumor, um, it's a mouthful, as you all know. Um, it, the name that a lot of people um, used to use and still use is pigmented villonodular synovitis, um, or another uh, disease called giant cell tumor of the tendon sheath. Um, the official name, though, for both of those entities is tenosynovial giant cell tumor, um, and I will um, point out in a few minutes why we use that term uh, as opposed to the other terms. Um, those other two diseases are really the same disease, it's just in different locations and different um, presentations. Um, sometimes you'll hear me slip into saying PVNS because it's easier to say than TGCT, um, but um, the official name now is tenosynovial giant cell tumor. Um, so I think, as most of you know, this is a disease that can arise in the joint capsules, an area that we call the synovium, um, or in the, the, the membranous sheath that goes around tendons. Um, and historically, if it was uh, a small amount of disease in the fingers um, associated with the tendons, that's often what was called the giant cell, tendon, giant cell tumor of the tendon sheath. And then if it was a more... Uh, nodular or, dif or dis more spread out disease within a larger joint, it was often called pigmented villonodular synovitis. Um, the, it also, but again, both of those are, are now properly called tenosynovial giant cell tumor. It's also subclassified as either localized type or diffuse type. And localized type means that it's really existing as a single nodule. And the diffuse type means that it's got multiple nodules um, usually distributed in um, a joint space. We, we do see this. Um, I'm a, I am a medical oncologist, so I treat patients who typically have cancer, although we also treat a variety of diseases that are not uh, cancerous. Um, and this is a disease that um, we do see in the sarcoma group typically. Um, and sarcomas are a rare group of mostly cancers that can spread to other parts of the body. But this is not, um, tenosynovial giant cell tumor is not a cancer. Um, it's not a disease that spreads to other parts of the body. Um, and it's something that we would call a benign neoplasm. Neoplasm means an abnormal growth, and benign means it doesn't have a risk of metastasizing. Now, if any of you know Latin, benign means good and malignant means bad, um, but we don't think of this as being benign in a good sense. We just mean benign as it doesn't have a risk of spreading. Um, as you know, it can still be a destructive um, disease and cause quite a bit of um, harm to a person in terms of uh, limitations in function um, or accelerated arthritis and other problems like that that I'll touch on in a second. Um, so this is a disease that typically occurs in younger patients, um, younger compared to other patients who actually have um, more typical uh, cancers. Um, so we often see this in people in their 20s, their 30s, uh, and 40s, and sometimes older than that as well. It often presents as a painful joint that sometimes um, could be swollen, um, and then sometimes the swelling resolves. It is commonly initially managed as a traumatic injury, 
um, and because of the patient population, that these are usually uh, young and active people who then develop a swollen knee. And so the most common thing that could be causing that is a torn meniscus or a torn ligament or some other injury that causes swelling in the knee. Um, so because of that, as I'm sure a lot of you have experienced, it can take many years to diagnose um, because it gets better, uh, swelling can get better, um, and the pain can get better, and then it can worsen again later. If um, someone does go to have an MRI done, um, there's some characteristic findings that most radiologists can detect. Um, not in every case, but in most cases, it's pretty characteristic. Uh, and in some cases, people will proceed to a biopsy where um, a radiologist would put a needle into, into the mass uh, and obtain a sample that a pathologist would then look at um, and make that diagnosis. The most typical locations of the localized disease is um, in the hand or the knee, um, hand, wrist, or knee. The knee is probably the most common. And of the diffuse disease, the knee is the most common, and then other common sites are in the hip or in the ankle. Uh, but these things can really occur in any, any joint in the body. Now, the standard treatment is removal of the disease by surgery if it needs to be removed. Um, and it's often um, uh, an extensive discussion about whether or not it needs to be removed, uh, mainly because it depends on how significant the patient's symptoms are. When possible, the surgeons will try to remove it with a scope, uh, arthroscopy. Um, if it's more extensive, uh, extensively spread within the joint, sometimes they need to do uh, what we call an open surgery, which is more of an incision where they open up the joint space and can remove the disease. Um, the problem is that, especially with the diffuse type, recur recurrences are common. And as the disease comes back, it, be it can become more challenging to manage with surgery. And each surgery can then be uh, associated with more um, uh, difficulties in healing, problems with stiffness, uh, risk of nerve injury, um, or other um, complications that can occur around the time of the surgery or um, or afterwards. Some uh, people in the past have also treated this with radiation therapy. Um, that's not something that we recommend. There's not a great body of uh, uh, literature behind this or clinical trials behind it, but we do get concerned about the use of, of radiation, even at low doses, to treat um, benign conditions because, because of the risk, um, although quite small, that radiation can um, can induce uh, a more aggressive form of the disease. Um, so it is not an area that we um, at our center recommend, and I think that's true of most um, centers uh, in the world. The um, appearance of the disease under the microscope, so if it is biopsied or removed surgically, um, the pathologists look at it, um, they stain it with different markers, and they look at it under the microscope. And this is where it got the name uh, PVNS before, um, because there's some um, brownish areas under the microscope that look like what we would call pigment. So pigment would be what we make in our, um, our skin cells and our hair cells to make um, the, the color. Um, the, but what, what, the, what actually it is under the microscope is not pigment, but it's um, a breakdown product of blood. So these tumors often can induce some bleeding into the joint space. And then some cells within the tumor will clean up the blood by basically um, absorbing it back into the cells. And as that blood is broken down, it makes this, this appearance of pigment. 
but it's not really pigment, and that's why the pathologists don't like the P in PVNS. The V and the N in PVNS refer to the shape of the tumor under the microscope. The villus is sort of like a finger-like projection, so these little areas are little, um, you can imagine the shape of a finger, but much smaller, and the N, the nodular shape, is that there's some rounder components to it, too. And then the S of PVNS is synovitis, which means inflammation of the lining of the joint. But this is not uh, inflammatory. This is actually an abnormal, abnormal growth or a tumor. So that's why our pathologists don't like the term uh, pigmented villar nodrosynovitis, and instead they prefer tenosynovial, which means tendon and joint capsule, giant cell tumor. And the giant cell part of it is because under the microscope, some of these cells are much larger than other cells. They're actually cells that look like they have um, fused to each other to form these things called giant cells. And so that's a characteristic microscopic appearance of the cells. The, um, the interesting thing about the tumor under the microscope, though, is that very few of the cells are actually abnormal cells. The bulk of the tumor is made up of normal inflammatory cells um, that are drawn to the tumor. And I'll come back to that in a second. But this is an interesting concept for this disease, and there are a few other diseases that are like this as well. But what's interesting is that it's not just a bunch of abnormal cells. It's actually a very small number of abnormal cells and a large number of normal inflammatory cells that make up the larger mass. Now, again, I mentioned that um, uh, it's often called a benign disorder, um, but as all of you know, I'm sure very well, it can have really significant impact on patients' lives. Um, I, and I can I'll list off a few examples of some patients of mine. Um, a young woman who dropped out of um, high school um, because of the pain associated with her tumor, and she uh, wasn't able to do other activities, such as hiking or running or participating in school activities, um, and needed to start taking some pretty powerful pain medicines. Uh, another young man who... Um, uh, who had multiple surgeries, four or five surgeries of his knee, um, and it prevented him from being able to run or to bike or to do other um, activities with his friends. Uh, a woman who uh, couldn't work as a baker anymore because she had recurrent disease in her ankle that limited her ability to stand. Um, and another woman who, um, again, at a, a young age, uh, had it in her hip um, and made it difficult for her to run after and play with her children um, because of the discomfort that's associated with it. So again, these are not life-threatening problems, but they are significant disruptions to someone's life, um, and in some cases can cause um, problems where they're needing additional medications to treat the pain that they have, um, and have problems with being active uh, and other problems uh, related to that. So again, not life-threatening like malignancy, but it definitely causes what we call morbidity. And morbidity means um, uh, illness or detriment to someone's quality of life. And this can happen because the tumors can cause accelerated destruction of cartilage within joints and therefore cause arthritis to occur earlier than um, the normal aging process would. Um, and that's primarily because of the bleeding that can occur within the joint space and that blood can be very inflammatory. It also can cause some erosion to the bones the surgeries can cause problems that you, you know, after any kind of surgery, you have some scarring and that can cause stiffness and limit your range of motion. And there's a risk of, especially in some areas like the back of the knee where there are important nerves that go back there, 
and sometimes there's um, just as part of the normal course of surgery, the nerve can get injured and can cause difficulties in walking um, following the surgery. And then for many patients um, that we end up seeing in the clinic, the disease is extended um, outside of the joint uh, into the soft tissues around it um, to a point where it's no longer something that could be managed by surgery. So what was really clear after you know, this traditionally being managed by surgery is that we needed other options that didn't inc uh, involve surgery, and we really uh, wanted a, a medical approach that could help treat the disease. For a long time, there was some debate about whether this was truly a, um, a neoplastic tumor, an abnormal growth, or whether it was a reaction to some other inflammatory process. And the big breakthrough happened in 2006 uh, where some colleagues of ours at Stanford um, described an abnormality in the cells of the tumor where two different genes are inappropriately put together. And as you may know, genes are what make for, uh, code for our different proteins in our body, and they are sort of like words in a, in, a, in a book. And what has happened is that a gene from one chromosome and a gene from another chromosome, sort of, sort of, sort of like a word from one chapter and another word from a different chapter, were inappropriately stuck together. And in doing so in the tumor, it led to overproduction of one of these proteins. A protein that normally was very tightly regulated was now being made consistently and at times where it shouldn't be made. That protein has uh, the initials of CSF1. It stands for Colony Stimulating Factor 1. It's an old name, but CSF1 is the name of the protein that's made. So this is being made inappropriately by the tumor cells. And what that does is it stimulates something called a receptor. Um, so the CSF1 receptor sits on the outside of a cell, and it, when CSF1 binds to it, it sends a signal inside the cell telling that cell to grow and make more copies of the cell. So this, this abnormal cell is making a lot of CSF1, and then any cell that has that receptor is being stimulated to grow. So it stimulates its own growth, but it also is an attractant for those inflammatory cells I mentioned before. So all these other normal inflammatory cells are kind of honing in on the signal, almost like they're smelling that there's an infection going on. There's no infection going on at all, but the, the protein is signaling that, and these inflammatory cells are coming to try to clean it up. And as they do that, they form this mass, and this inflammatory mass is something that can be destructive to the surrounding tissues. So that's the, the, the pathophysiology, that's the biology behind how this tumor forms, that some cells have this abnormal fusion of two different genes, it's overproducing this protein called CSF1, and that leads to this um, the signaling to draw in all these other cells. So when we look under the microscope, that's why we see a small number of the abnormal cells and a large number of those inflammatory cells um, that are drawn in because of the overproduction of the protein. So that was a really important discovery. Um, and then pretty soon after that, um, a colleague of ours from France, his name is Jean-Yves Blay, um, tried using a drug called imatinib, it's also called Gleevec is the brand name, um, in a patient who had unresectable disease in her elbow. Now this was um, uh, an observation that he made because uh, he was aware that there were some drugs like imatinib that are known to be inhibitors of the CSF1 receptor. That's not why the drug was developed. The drug was developed to treat some other diseases, that we, and we use it quite commonly for that reason. 
Um, but but he said, hey, it also can work against this receptor. What happens if we give it to a patient who has disease that's not operable? And what he reported was this patient had complete resolution of the disease in her elbow. It went from being there and causing symptoms to no longer being present, and her elbow felt well. Later, she stopped the drug, and the disease grew back. And he put her back on the drug, and it responded again. So this was what we call a proof of principle. This was the first demonstration that a drug that could inhibit the CSF1 receptor could be a treatment option for patients who had unresectable disease. And following his report of this, we started using it um, really across the world in patients who had unresectable um, tenosynovial giant cell tumor. And then we participated in a publication, this is now going back to 2012, um, of um, those of us across the world who had treated patients with imatinib. And we reported at that time 29 patients. We updated this uh, in the last few months. It was an updated publication about this where, where we had significantly more patients that we had treated with imatinib. Um, the um, disease mostly was in patients' knees. About 60% um, of patients had it in their knees, but had it the other locations too, in the hip, the foot, the ankle, um, the shoulder, et cetera. Um, the average age of the patients were about 41, which is quite typical for this disease. And what we found was that about 16% um, about of patients had significant shrinkage of their disease. So not all of them, but you know, that's 16% is about one in six patients had significant shrinkage. And about another three-quarters of the patients um, had their disease stop growing, um, and, and a few patients had disease that continued to grow. The, um, so it did look like this was an effective treatment for patients. When we looked back through our notes to see if patients reported improvement in symptoms, about three-quarters of patients said that their symptoms of their disease got better. Um, now, this was not a formal clinical trial where we enroll patients and then follow what happened. This was looking back through our notes of what had happened to patients that we gave the drug to before. So the accuracy of the data is a little bit different than what we'd expect in a, in a, in a forward-looking uh, clinical trial. Um, but um, nonetheless, imatinib, uh, we decided, was a good option for patients. And in general, it's pretty well tolerated. Um, some patients, uh, like with any medication, could have more serious side effects, but in general, it's pretty well tolerated. The major side effects can be some puffiness around the face or the ankles, um, and some people get some diarrhea. Um, but for most patients, it's pretty well tolerated. We um, also then uh, a variety of different clinical studies uh, followed that based on um, uh, drugs that were similar to imatinib and their ability to inhibit the CSF1 receptor. There was a study in Europe and Australia and a separate study that we led here in the United States of a drug called nilotinib, which is also called Tisigna. And this seemed to have some activity, but nothing that was really earth-shattering. I mean, again, it seemed to stop the disease. There were very few patients who had significant reduction in the size of their disease. And some other studies also were performed of drugs um, that are, were engineered in the laboratory um, to block the ability of the CSF1 to bind to the receptor. These are drugs that are laboratory-engineered uh, antibodies, similar to proteins that we normally make to fight infection, but these are things that we can make in the, in, um, or drug companies can make in their labs to uh, specifically bind proteins. And a variety of these, one called Emactuzumab, another one called Kabirolizumab, another one called Lacnotuzumab, uh, and some others have been studied. And these also have shown um, some activity and shrinkage of disease in patients with uh, advanced 
sinusinovia giant cell tumor. Um, and there are still some studies going on with those drugs, too, um, of, those, of those classes. Now, another drug um, also um, came forward as a very strong inhibitor of the CSF1 receptor, and that's a drug uh, called pexidartinib, um, now called um, Turalio. Um, and so this um, was uh, initially um, designed to be a very potent inhibitor of this protein, the CSF1 receptor, as well as a few other receptors. Um, it was first in a clinical study we call a phase one study, where different patients are given um, uh, different amounts of the drug. So we start at a very low level, and we slowly work our way up, depending on what side effects patients are having. It can be used for many different tumor types. Um, there were, in this study, there were um, a total of, uh, well, there's, in, in one part of the study, there were 23 patients with sinusinovial giant cell tumor that were enrolled. Um, and half of them, or almost half of them, more than half of them, 12 of the 23 had significant shrinkage of their disease. So this was by far, so far, the most active drug that we had seen. Um, and in general, it also was well tolerated. Um, the most striking side effect that we see is that it causes your hair to turn white um, because in addition to blocking this CSF1 receptor, it also blocks a different uh, receptor called KIT, K-I-T, which is important for pigmentation of your hair. So um, that's probably the most striking side effect is that the hair turns white. And then some patients reported fatigue and mild nausea or altered taste, um, some swelling. Uh, and then some patients had, in this study, had some um, transient uh, increases in some of their liver tests. Um, but in general, it was very well tolerated. From that study, um, we went on to do what's called a phase three study, which is um, where some patients get one treatment and other patients get no treatment or um, a different treatment. In this study, the study was called Enliven, compared pexidartinib to a sugar pill, a placebo, for patients who had disease that couldn't be removed by surgery, and they would get one of those two things, either pexidartinib or a sugar pill, and they didn't know what they were getting and we didn't know what they were getting, they would get that for 24 weeks, for, so for about six months. And they'd have MRI scans during the course of that. And in addition, we would assess how the patient felt in terms of improvement or, or stabilization or worsening of symptoms related to their disease. And, and the reason that both of those things were important is that typically in cancer studies, we're using shrinkage of a tumor as a surrogate for how long someone might live. That's not the case here for a tenosovial giant cell tumor. We could shrink the disease, but if it doesn't make anyone feel better, then it's not really helping them. And conversely, if we make them feel better, but it's not changing the disease, then we're probably just making a very expensive form of ibuprofen or something like that. So we thought it was very important in the study to assess not just what was happening to the size of the tumor, but also to how the patient was feeling. So something we call patient-reported outcomes. Um, so we enrolled 120 patients. Um, and then after those 24 weeks, they were, if they were assigned to the sugar pill at first, they could then move on to get the um, pexidartinib. We saw the similar side effects, the hair color changes, fatigue, some minor elevations in liver tests, some mild nausea. Um, but what we also saw were there were a few patients in this study who had a more serious form of liver injury. Um, that ended up recovering the study. Um, but at the same time as this study was going on, uh, the drug was also being used in some other studies, uh, and a handful of other patients also had some serious liver toxicity. So 
So a very small number of patients in general had that liver toxicity, but this is a side effect that we are observed for very carefully because, uh, again, patients don't have a life-threatening illness, so we want to make sure we're not causing harm by giving them a treatment for their disease. The, the study, the Enliven study, showed a really um, impressive improvement in how patients did if they got the pexidartinib uh, compared to if they got the sugar pill. And, and the, the first endpoint of the study, which was assessment by 24 weeks, 39% uh, of patients had significant shrinkage of their disease. Um, using one measurement and using a different measurement of the volume, it was about 56% of patients. And no one on the placebo uh, had significant shrinkage of their disease. Now, we've continued to follow these patients beyond those 24 weeks, uh, and the response rate, the, amount, the number of patients who've had shrinkage has continued to go up. Uh, and now it's in around 60% of patients have had shrinkage. And we also saw improvement in the range of motion of their joints, in their ability to function, the physical function scale, and in their stiffness. And those were all statistically significant. We also saw improvement in their pain, although that didn't reach what we call statistical significance, but there was clear improvement in their, in their discomfort related to it as well. So, um, so Pexidartinib, so based on that study and some other work that was also done, Pexidartinib was approved for patients with advanced tenosynovial giant cell tumor that was not amenable to surgery. Um, uh, it was approved last uh, August. So it is now available in the United States by prescription. Um, it does require close monitoring for those liver toxicities I mentioned. Um, but again, uh, for the majority of patients, this is um, a very safe drug. Um, and just reflecting back on some of those patients I mentioned before, um, they, they had improvement in their symptoms. They were able to come off their pain medicines. They were going back to things like running and dancing. Um, they were able to play with their children. I mean, it was, it's really from a physician perspective, um, this drug really um, significantly helped our patients who were suffering from their disease before, and, and that's something that we're always uh, looking uh, to develop. The, I would say that we still have a lot of questions related to this uh, drug and to the treatment. Um, first, one of the most important ones is who is the right person to treat? When does somebody need treatment? And I would say that in my practice, I really limit it to patients who um, have symptoms, number one. So if you just have disease in your knee and you're not symptomatic from it, um, I, I don't think it makes any sense to start treatment at this point. Uh, and number two, um, are not uh, good candidates for surgery, either because they have other illnesses that prevent that or because the disease would be so likely to come back or the surgery would cause so many other problems to do it that surgery is not recommended. So those are the two really important criteria from my perspective about uh, who we would recommend treatment. Our treatments can include this medicine, pexidartinib. I also still use imatinib as a treatment for this, and we still have clinical trials that are ongoing with other agents. Um, and just because pexidartinib is approved and shown to efficacy doesn't mean that there could be other drugs that also could be effective, maybe have a different side effect profile, maybe be more effective, maybe not. But that's why we continue to do clinical research to understand um, what treatments can be helpful for patients. We also want to be absolutely certain that we're maintaining patient safety um, while we're treating this disease. Again, the disease is not life-threatening. It can be extremely debilitating. So we definitely want to make patients better, um, but we have to maintain their safety. We don't know how long patients need treatment. Um, we, we suspect that if we stop the drug, that patient's disease might grow back. 
but can we treat them intermittently instead? Could we treat them for six months or a year or two years until their symptoms get better and the tumor shrinks and then take a break? And then if it gets worse again, go back on the drug again. Can we use the drug, any of these drugs, to facilitate surgery? If we have someone who's not a good candidate for surgery now because the extent of disease, can we treat them for a while with the drug and then does that help make surgery easier and reduce the risk of it coming back? Or can we use the drug either before or after surgery exactly for that purpose to reduce the risk of recurrence? Another question is, will we see resistance just like we do with cancer therapies? Uh, we haven't seen any yet. I don't know of any examples to someone who had disease that responded and then it started growing again. Um, but these are all really important questions that we need to continue exploring. So there's more to be done. We're very thrilled that we have um, treatment options now for this disease. Uh, and as I mentioned, we continue to develop them. So I think that's about what I wanted to share with you uh, as a presentation. I'm very happy to try to address uh, any of your questions. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Wagner. That was really outstanding, really phenomenal, frankly. And I think you really covered so much information in, in this time. And um, I think there were lots of questions for you. Um, and so I'm going to uh, ask um, Sonia to explain to our audience. Well, actually, I want to say a few words just about some resources, actually. So there are um, there are some free resources for all of you from the National Organization for Rare Disorders, um, and they actually um, have a section on um, on on, on tenosynovial giant cell tumor, TGCT, um, and you can visit their website at www.rarediseases.org, or you can contact them. They actually don't have a toll-free number. It's 1203-744-0100. It's a wonderful organization, and they have a whole section devoted to this topic. Just so you have, um, and they do have some other resources there as well. Um, so that um, I'm going to refer you to Nord, and then they will be able to provide other organizations as well. Um, uh, because I know that that's people may be interested in a support group or some type of an activity that would give them some type of support, and so we want to be sure that um, that you have access to that as a resource. Now we do have time for questions, and I'm going to ask Sonia to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Sonia, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. If you would like to ask a question, please press star than one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to move yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit a question by clicking ask a question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star then one. So we have a question in front of our online participants. Um, so what causes TGCT? One of the questions. Yeah, it's a very good question. The um, and I'm going to say every each one of these questions is a very good question, but I really mean it. So they're good questions, and they're they're important things to address. So um, so what seems to cause it in a cell is that inappropriate joining together of two different genes. Um, the one is what what we call a promoter of that controls the expression of a collagen promoter of gene and the other part is the CSF1 that I mentioned earlier. Um, we don't know why the cell makes this mistake and fuses those two things together. In fact, it's quite extraordinary that we have so many cells in our body and so many genes in each cell. It's quite extraordinary that we don't make mistakes more often. Our bodies are very good about proofreading 
um, as they're um, dividing and making more copies of the, the DNA. Um, but we don't, we don't know why this mistake happens. This is not hereditary. So it's only in the tumor cells. It's not in other cells in your body. It's not something you would pass on to your children. It's also not associated with any exposure that we know of, not from um, pesticides or other chemicals. Um, there's no connection to that that we're aware of. It's not related to trauma. It's not caused, caused by injury. Um, it's just a mistake that the cell made. Um, and it's also not contagious, so it's not something that spreads from one person to another. It's just a mistake um, that led to the uncontrolled production of this protein that leads to the tumor formation. And actually, there's a question about whether this is an inherited um, risk, and so you've answered that question as well. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, it's not, right, exactly. Um, and here's another question. I have a tumor in my hand. Is it possible I, I get TGCT in a different part of my body? Very, very, very unlikely. Uh, we've really, uh, I know of two patients, one I've seen, one a colleague has seen, who's had it in more than one joint, and it's really baffling. I mean, I, I really, I'm talking to colleagues elsewhere in the world who see this and to surgeons who see this, uh, we don't see it in more than one joint. So I'm not quite sure why uh, those two patients have had it in more than one joint, but we do not expect that this would arise anywhere else in the body. And then the question is, how is TGCT related to sarcoma? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And why do we see it in the sarcoma group? Um, it, so it's it is so sarcomas sort of by definition are cancers with risks of spreading. Although we do see other patient, other types of diseases that are like TGCT, a benign disorder that doesn't spread but still can cause some sort of injury to a person. The um, sarcoma is a, uh, a family of tumors um, that are really rare. There's about 100 different diagnoses, and together they make up about 15,000 cases in the United States each year, and that's compared to about, I don't know, close to 300,000 cases of lung cancer in the United States each year. So it's a really, really rare family of tumors, and they are tumors of connective tissue, of bone, of cartilage, of muscle, fat, nerves. Uh, blood vessels and things like that. So we, we consider this um, tumor that arises in the sort of the connective tissue of the joint space, we consider this in the sarcoma family. But it's not a malignancy. It's not a cancer that can spread to other parts of the body. And then the issue is how can you differentiate between a benign TGCT and a sarcoma? Because that's a medical school question, but still how... How yeah. you can say something, and these are great questions, actually, it's true. No, it's a great question. So, th I mean, th this is uh, what pathologists do for, for a living, and we rely on their expertise. They, so they look at it on the microscope, um, and it's, it's, they're trained to identify patterns. So it's sort of like how do you say something is an apple and not an orange. Um, I mean, we can look at those things and say there are different things about them. It's red, smooth, the shape, all these different things versus uh, orange being, uh, you know, orange and dimpled and smells differently and all these different factors that are different to them. So pathologists look at these under the microscope, and that's how they make a diagnosis. Sometimes they use other stains that help identify different things, and we also tie it together with the imaging. Um, so what does the MRI look like? Is it a pattern that's quite characteristic of this disease? 
So for the most part, they, the pathologists are, are, can easily identify this tumor. There are some rare situations where it's a little bit more difficult to identify the tumor type, but for the most part, this is something that they can pretty reliably identify. I also want to make a point, though. There's another tumor which is different, and the names are awful, as you can tell. So tenosynovial giant cell tumor is one disease. Another disease that we also treat in sarcoma, another benign tumor we also treat in sarcoma, is called giant cell tumor of bone. So the names are awful. They overlap with each other, but they're very different diseases. We, use, we treat giant cell tumor of bone with a different drug, a drug called denosumab, or with surgery. Um, but tenosynovial giant cell tumor, um, the approved drug is pexidartinib. They're, they're just different diseases with similar names. So another question is, does it matter where I go in terms of being diagnosed? Do I need to go to a large cancer center, a large place that has pathologists that are familiar with this um, rare disease, or can any pathologist at any small hospital anywhere in the country diagnose this? Um, so that, that's a good question. I think so. For a lot of the sarcomas, we think it's really important that they get reviewed. They can be initially evaluated at a smaller hospital, or but but because they're so rare, the pathologist isn't seeing very many of these. Um, we do think that it's very important for those to be reviewed at a at a larger center that has more experience with sarcomas. For this for tenosynovial giant cell tumor, I think most pathologists can identify this. I think if there's any question, they should certainly send it on for another opinion to. Uh, pathologist who has more experience with it, but I think in general this can be um, diagnosed uh, by community pathologists. The, um, it, also, it also often is managed um, by sports medicine doctors, by orthopedic surgeons who, who focus on sports medicine, usually in community practices and not in larger academic centers, um, which, which I think is good if the disease is localized. They can do a good job of managing it. Um, when it gets more complicated surgery, that's when they often will refer patients in for further discussion, um, either with a surgeon, uh, an orthopedic oncologist, a surgeon who handles more complicated uh, surgeries, um, or with a medical oncologist to talk about medical therapy. We, we would love to encourage people to send patients in earlier to see us, um, so even before that first surgery, um, but if not before the first surgery, then... Uh, around the time of the surgery, and we can help be involved in the follow-up plan as well as the discussion of um, treatment options. Um, so we do encourage patients to, to seek out um, a, a medical oncologist who has expertise in this um, to discuss the, um, the disease and the, the treatment options. Excellent. And um, another question from our online participants. Um, can, um, can drugs help me avoid surgery? Um, that, that's a good question. I would say not yet. Um, the Well, let me back up on that a little bit. If surgery would be, uh, would cause a lot of what we call morbidity, a lot of complications from the surgery, then yes, the medications can be an alternative to the surgery. If the disease could be removed surgically, um, then we still prefer a surgical approach to medicine. We would like to study that further. So we, that's definitely a, a group of patients that we would like to do some studies to see, well, what happens if we give the drug first? Does that change the outcome following surgery? 
Um, but the indication, the, the FDA approval for pexidartinib was for patients who have disease that is not amenable to surgery. So that requires a surgeon with expertise to review this and say, you know what, if I did surgery, you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't have function of your, your leg again or your foot again, or you'd have real bad stiffness or some other problem where the surgeon is not recommending um, surgery. Or they could say, you know, even if I took it out, it's going to be right back again in a few months. So it doesn't help you to do the surgery. Those would be reasons to do medical treatment. A related question from one of our participants is, does surgery cause um, side effects, often cause side effects? So it depends. And, and it, I think, you know, if it's a, the scope procedures that the surgeons can do, people usually heal from that pretty well. Um, if they have to do the longer incisions, so sometimes what they do is the arthroscopy in the front, and they'll do the um, open incision in the back to try to get full exposure of the joint. I'm talking about the knee in particular, to get full exposure of the knee. Um, and, and when you do surgery like that, it does take a longer time to recover from the surgery, and you can have some postoperative stiffness. And as I mentioned before, there's some important nerves and vessels that run through there too that the surgeons do their best to avoid, but sometimes... Um, those can get injured during the course of surgery. Um, so surgery is not, um, uh, it's, it, I mean, for, me, for most patients, they get through it pretty well, but it's still surgery um, and has risks associated with it. Um, and this question, um, I have a tumor in my hand. Is it possible to get TGCT in, different, in, different part, in a different part of the body, in my body? Yeah, so I think I think we may have touched on that before, but um, we don't see that. We see that it arises in one place and stays there. So we don't see it spreading to different parts of the body. And then there's a question which, um, so I don't know anyone with TGCT. Are there support groups for people with the condition at sarcoma centers or, um, so are, are I'm just going to address, first of all, that certainly NOR, the National Organization for Rare Disorders, would be able to help with finding a support group. But I just wondered if any of the centers that treat um, this um, you know, TGCT offer any type of support group for people in, in coping and, and they're coping with this. I, you know, I'm not aware of any, you know, it's hard at our institutions because, you know, I'll, we'll see a few dozen patients with the disease, but it still is pretty rare and it's hard to have a large group. Um, and, and everyone's a little bit different. So some patients have it and they're totally fine. Other patients have it and they have more symptoms related to it or are on medical treatment. Um, so I'm not aware of any institutional support groups um, or even outside of organizations like NORD um, and other patient advocacy groups where they might have some support groups associated with that. I've, I've heard that there's a, uh, uh, I think it's a Facebook group uh, called PVNS's Pants. I think it's based out of the UK. Um, I don't know much about it, but I hear that a lot of patients are connected through that. I don't know um, to what extent there's organized support activities versus it's just a forum for people with the disease to be in touch with each other. And what's it called again? What the group is called? It's a Facebook group? I think group. it's called PVNS is Pants, P-A-N-T-S. I think uh, I don't know if anyone from the UK can speak to this, but I think pants is a is a, a slang word for something bad. Well, the UK actually has a number of programs actually for people 
with rare diseases, so actually, and with with and with conventional diseases as well. But that would definitely be something worth looking into. And I and probably uh, it may that Nord may be able to give you the exact reference for it. But that's it's good to know. That's because I think that's a very good question. I know often people do want to be talking to other people who have similar issues and concerns. So that's a a really yeah. Excellent. I think it's. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I think it's great for patients to try to find other patients who have diseases, but please keep in mind, or have the similar disease, but please keep in mind that everyone is different and is in a different situation. And what works or doesn't work for one person might not be the same for you. So just um, please keep that in mind as you do talk with other patients who have a similar disease. That's such an important point. That That's actually very true. Um, and sort of comparing notes, um, really it's more so that many of the groups um, if they're moderated by someone um, as a professional person or a peer-led group, they are really careful about people so comparing notes and thinking like, oh, I should try this or I should do that. You really want to um, understand what, um, what Dr. Wagner is saying, that everyone is different in terms of their treatment protocols. Um, excellent point. Um, this is really a very amazing, I have to say these are kind of amazing questions that people are asking, and um, I just really... Um, so although we've addressed this before, it just the question of being at risk for cancer is coming up as a common theme. So I just wanted to, again, address that question, even though you have addressed it already, Dr. Wagner. Being at risk for cancer, is that what you yeah. said? Yes, a higher risk for cancer. So, yeah, so uh, no. I mean, there, there are, we, we published uh, a, a series of patients who did have a cancerous form of this, um, it is extraordinarily rare, and it's not something I ever consider when I see a patient with uh, with tenosophageal giant cell tumor. I mean, we've seen a few patients who do have a cancerous form, but that is easy for a pathologist to identify, uh, and is at the time of diagnosis that that is identified. So I really, I don't want to say it never happens because if you start looking for it in the literature, you'll see a couple of cases, including, as I mentioned. Um, one that I published, but the it's extraordinarily rare, and this is not a form of cancer, uh, and it will not spread to other parts of the body. That's really important for everybody to hear. That's, that's a very important point. And um, the issue around surgery, there's a couple of questions are all grouped together, but in terms of recurrence after surgery, um, if you could say something about that as well. Yeah, so... Um, it's hard to say because of what we call bias in the patient population. Um, so if someone has surgery and they do okay, they're not coming to see me because they're okay. So, so what I end up seeing in my clinic are patients who've had the disease come back. Um, so I can't tell you how many patients are out there who either never needed surgery because it wasn't really bothering them or had surgery and they're fine um, because they won't come to our clinics. So the patients I do see are patients who um, who have had um, disease recur, and then they're coming for advice about what to do. Or, I mean, increasingly we're seeing some patients who do come at their initial presentation because there's more discussion about the disease, um, and patients are coming to discuss treatment options at that point. And if they're not symptomatic for a large number of them, we actually just recommend watching it uh, and not doing anything right now. So um, it's hard to say what the true risk is of recurrence. Some countries, like in the Netherlands, where they have a very uh, comprehensive uh, system for recording what's happening to every patient in the country with any disease, 
they're able to go back through these um, histories and see what happens to patients. And I think depending a little bit about whether it's localized or diffuse and what what area of the body it's in, uh, the range of recurrence can be from something on the 5 to 10% to up to the 40 to 50, 60% range. So it really depends a lot on the characteristics of the location of the tumor and the extent of the tumor when it presents. And um, there are a group of questions all about radiation, which I know you addressed during your presentation, um, but still here are these questions. Um, when is it advisable to get radiation after surgery? Will radiation after surgery help prevent recurrence? And what are the side effects of radiation? Right. So this is, this is a tough one to answer because we really don't know the answers to these questions. They're very important questions. Um, the, there have been um, small reports of the use of radiation um, in patients uh, in the, you know, looking back and saying what happened to our patients that we gave radiation to in the past. Um, the, the, what we call the follow-up, the duration of time that those patients were followed after the treatment tended to be pretty short. So we don't know whether you know, five years later or 10 years later the disease came back because they were looking more in the one year later or two year later period of time. Um, and we don't have a lot of data on the longer term complications of radiation. In general, radiation is pretty safe, um, but it's radiation and it can cause damage to other cells. It can cause some scarring or fibrosis of the tissue. Uh, it can cause some injury to the skin. Um, that usually gets better. Um, but the other part that we worry about is if we take a, a, a benign tumor, a tumor that doesn't have potential for spreading, and we treat it with radiation, which, for, which damages DNA, are we putting it at risk for developing an alteration that makes it into a cancer? Probably not. I mean, this is pretty unusual. But the thing that we worry about is that this is not like we're treating a 75-year-old, an 80-year-old uh, with radiation um, when it could take 10 or 20 years for a cancer to form as a result of radiation. But if we're talking about treating 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, et cetera, I mean, they still have a long way to go in their lives that we don't want to be causing more problems. Again, the risk is very small. We just don't know that there's uh, any real benefit to doing the radiation. So at our center, we do not recommend radiation for this disease, um, especially now that we have um, a potential medical treatment uh, for it. And there are some questions about clinical trials. Um, are there current clinical trials going on that people should be aware of? Um, and um, where do they tend to occur? And um, how can they access them? Yeah, there there are a few trials that are still ongoing. Um, the best way to find them is to go to clinicaltrials.gov, clinicaltrials.gov. That is a website that's maintained by the um, uh, National Institutes of Health as a repository for all clinical trials in the United States and often elsewhere in the world. Um, the and you can search on that for TGCT or probably for PVNS and find any trials uh, and their status. Are they open? Where are they open? Are they recruiting patients? What what drugs involved? What treatments involved? Um, so that's where I would suggest looking for additional information about studies. There are several companies that are still working on new drugs. Uh, for this disease, um, and that's, you know, I, I like using pexidartinib. I like using imatinib. I think those drugs can, can be effective, but I also think that um, there's always room for additional clinical trials uh, to try to understand 
are the drugs that work better uh, or work differently or have different side effect profiles. Um, so um, the best way for us to understand that is for participation in clinical trials. Um, so they tend to be at the larger uh, academic centers uh, throughout the country and throughout the world, although some of these um, um, studies can also be at smaller sites, um, but, but typically they're, they're at, um, at academic centers. Excellent. Thank you. And, um, well, we actually don't have any more questions. This is amazing. We got through all the questions. And so I'm going to just ask you, Dr. Um, Wagner, if you just want to um, sum up or if there's any parting remarks that you'd like to make to everybody in terms of takeaway from today's program that they should keep with them and hold dear to them. Um, sure. I'll try to add a few comments. So um, I think... I hope I've, I've given you some information about the disease. I think by far the most important thing that you can do is what you're doing right now, which is seek information about the disease and the treatment um, from, from people who've got a lot of experience in using it, like myself and a lot of colleagues um, through in the country and other places in the world. I think we're very happy to talk about it um, and to share information with it. It's, it's um, an area where even my own uh, colleagues, my own oncology colleagues, uh, where I work often have never heard of it um, because it is a disease that's rare um, and it's something that's really, uh, I think most of the sarcoma oncologists now uh, know about it, know about the treatments, but um, it is uh, a great opportunity for, for more education and more learning about it. And I think being empowered with that knowledge uh, is the best way probably to deal with um, the disease and help put aside some questions uh, and worries that you might have about it. I also um, want to uh, um, reassure you that despite the rarity of diseases like this, a lot of us in, in the medicine side, um, <clears throat> excuse me, and a lot of companies from the pharma side are very much aligned in developing new treatments, even if the disease is rare. This is not, you know, just, just to be clear, this is not a big market ticket for drug companies. This is really... Um, the fact that they are developing drugs for this shows their true passion in developing uh, medicines that can help patients um, and try to improve their, their quality of their, of their lives. Um, and the FDA also appreciates this, and they are a great partner in helping develop um, treatments for rare diseases while still focusing, especially in diseases like this that are not life-threatening, still focusing on maintaining the safety of patients. Um, I think that that's extraordinarily important for diseases like this, which is we definitely want to help patients with medical treatments, but we also want to maintain their safety. So I, I, would, I would just encourage you to be uh, optimistic um, that we will continue. We've already developed some medicines that can be effective in this disease, uh, and we will continue to work on it. There's still a lot of enthusiasm about developing new drugs despite the rarity of the disease. And what's really important is for, um, for all of you to stay engaged as a community, um, to let other people know about the opportunity for studies, to encourage clinical trial participation, um, and to, to share the things that you've learned with other people who, who also are dealing with this. So thank you very much. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Dr. Wagner. You've been, this has been an amazing presentation. I really, really thank you for your um, outstanding presentation today. I also want to thank all of you who've been listening to the program today and asked such really great questions online, all of you. Um, it just, that's amazing. And I do want to remind all of you 
to really utilize the National Organization for Rare Disorders as a resource for you. And at the end of the program today, I would say within a day or two, you're going to get an evaluation form from us. And when you get that evaluation form, it will not just be an evaluation form, but you're also going to be um, receiving uh, actually um, uh, some information um, about all the resources that were mentioned both by Dr. Wagner and about NORD. So you have them at your fingertips. That's really important. Um, and the other thing I just want to stress very much on this program is that because this is a rare disorder, and also even if it were a common disorder, but it's a rare disorder, um, often people do sometimes feel alone, as if like there's no one who really has that experience. And I hope in being on this program today, you recognize that there are lots of you out there and that many of you are being, I think what Dr. Um, Wagner has said, being very successfully treated and this is very important as well, that your treatment is, is, is working. And if it isn't, you know places to go to to get help with your treatment. That's really important. Um, and I want to thank you all for your participation today. And I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.